Hello and welcome to the Teach Strong Talks podcast, a place for real conversations about effective approaches to well-being for school staff. Today on the show, I chat to Lucinda, the founder of Changing States of Mind. Lucinda is an education consultant, trainer, psychologist and podcast host whose mission is to support parents navigate secondary education successfully and students get the most out of their time in secondary school as well as help teachers to use evidence-based psychology in their classrooms. We cover a whole range of topics during our conversation, including the psychology of learning, helping alleviate exam anxiety, and long-term memory as well. And also make sure you stick till the end um, when Lucinda busts a few common psychology myths. Enjoy the conversation. So hello, Lucinda. Welcome to the Teach Strong Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about doing it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Fantastic. So um, if we can just jump straight into a little bit about your your background, um, you know, why is this area of psychology in the classroom a passion of yours and anything else you'd like to to add about, about your career so far? So yeah, um, I... Accidentally ended up doing psychology at university. Long story, which don't need to go into. But um, that came out, and then I faffed around for a couple of years, and then decided that I wanted to do teaching. Mm. So I went into teaching, and I think when I did my PGC, which was a very long time ago, um, <laughs> we didn't do most of my um, PGC was about the pedagogy, the how to teach science. So we did a science PGCE um, and there was no psychology in it really at all. Mm. But I remember sort of a lecture about SEN. So I then went and taught psychology and I was like, hang on a minute, all this stuff applies to what I'm doing. Um, and so it, it was kind of interesting from that perspective. But then I had children. So I took various career breaks in between various children. Um, and whilst on a career break, did a master's in special and inclusive education, which at the time, I don't think I really realised how valuable that was going to be because it turns out that my eldest is autistic and has ADHD and my youngest has dyslexia. So then from that, I ended up going through the sort of special education needs process with my eldest. He's had, well, he had um, a statement of special educational needs and then that changed into an education and healthcare plan um he's now at university which is amazing i was just mm -hmm. so proud of what he's achieved but all of this has kind of led me to feel really passionate about how psychology is so vital to helping education and helping teachers understand how people behave and what's going on inside their heads and how we can make the most out of a classroom situation so it's a kind of combination of various personal experiences as well as educational professional experiences that have led me to this kind of place where I just love what I do. <laughs> and, and what is it that you do? How, how do you spend a normal day? Tell us. <laughs> oh, so I do a number of things um, yeah. because obviously being a freelance, you know, you don't, and particularly in education. Um, so I work in ITT for Coventry University and I work mm -hmm. as an associate lecturer and looking after a number of trainees alongside the ITT I work for the school mental health award so I talk to schools um, about how they're implementing mental health provision um, all over the country so it's all done online which is amazing and I speak to you know last year I spoke to nearly 200 schools 
which was mm. and to hear what they're doing and just you know it's it's actually really humbling um and then on top of that i do my own consultancy so i do a number of things with that i work with schools who want to learn more about mental health and how to implement it but i also work with parents and individual students and groups of students on particularly on study skills so how mm. they can use the psychology of learning and cognitive psychology to improve their study skills oh wow what a, a varied um week you must have <laughs> yeah it, it it doesn't uh doesn't ever bore me no no, because you also host your own podcast as well, don't you? And yeah, which I <laughs> forgot. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, so I also I also host a podcast which I do weekly um, called Psychology in the Classroom, which uh, again I absolutely love doing, and I get to speak to psychologists all over the country, yeah. and it's amazing. Yeah, good, good. I'm glad I, I wanted to get that little plug in for your podcast as well. <laughs> That's right. Fantastic. Well, I mean the the mental health side of things, I think. I might have to invite you back on the show if that's okay, because I'd love to talk to you about your work in um, schools and what you do around there. But um, I wanted to talk to you today about psychology in the classroom. And and you mentioned that that's one of your big passions, isn't it? And you talk about bringing evidence-based psychology into the classroom. So just to begin with, can you um, like unfold that a, lo- a little bit you know why why do we need this in the classroom why is that important and evidence base what do you mean in case that's a phrase that people are unsure of exactly what you mean by evidence-based oh so when we're in the classroom a lot of what we do is very intuitive mm. the and and also we are constantly bombarded with you must do this in the classroom you must do that in the classroom and my view is that quite often what we're told to do comes via all sorts of pathways so some research is done way back in the distant past and then it goes through I always describe it as up sparkling processes by people like me (laughs) that's why I try to keep it real but sometimes the actual psychology the science gets lost so psychology is a really difficult science to study because we're studying human beings and human beings are In a science experiment, you would take your variables that you're measuring and the variables that you're manipulating, and you would make it a fair test by getting rid of everything else or controlling all the other variables. But Mm. human beings are really difficult to control (laughs) because I can't control for age or gender or, you know, previous experience. I can do it a little bit, but it's really, really difficult. And so psychology works on the basis of kind of it's something might be statistically significant and therefore there's a probability and usually we work to 95 percent probability that what Mm. we're looking at is actually having an effect so i feel very passionately that what we need to do is take the evidence and then understand it but be critical of it the problem is is that it's a it's a relatively new science it's always evolving we're always coming up with new research and we need to be aware of how our understanding of psychology changes and that's what I want to bring to teachers and that's particularly what my podcast does is taking Mm. all of this science and going hang on a minute we've said this but do we really know that you know and a a really good example going back to mental health is mindfulness Mm -hmm. so mindfulness is a big thing right now like loads of schools are offering it not saying it's a bad thing but initially most of the research was done on adult clinical population so this is a population that is struggling with mental health so that might be with depression or with anxiety they're adults and they're showing okay so for most of the people in that population mindfulness is beneficial it helps them with their mental health Mm. 
but there's a small subset that it doesn't work for. And then what somebody is doing is they're saying, okay, well, we're going to make this and we're going to make it work for children. But I'm like, hang on a minute, the research doesn't translate. You can't say this This is the same thing. Um, and then when the research is done, the research is done on, so there's been some big trials recently um, and the research is done and it's the teachers are trained. The mindfulness is very carefully controlled about how it's delivered and how it's presented and yet what we see in the classroom is some teachers picking a youtube video and doing it kind of like ad hoc and and we just don't know the benefits and i think what's also important is that sometimes although it might work for a majority in the classroom there may be a very small minority for whom it's it's actually harmful um mm. and i think we need to be really aware of that so i what I'd love is for teachers to be a little bit more critical of the science and what they're actually doing in the classroom. I totally recognise, having been in the classroom, that this is a really hard thing to do because you've got so much going on. You're not going to sit down it's and go like busy. read through a hundred papers to yeah. find out. So what I hope with you know with the podcast and with what I do is that I can bring that critical evaluation to it. Yeah, and I think that's what we need more pro- more professionals. Uh, that have experience both in the classroom and in some specific area and they break things down and think well how would this apply to the classroom just like you're doing but it could be in so many other fields can't it like history and and maths and and things but yeah so much of what you said um i i recognize and i've seen in in the past you know as a teacher myself i've seen a new um approach to to anything to to maths to writing something it's like right yeah but this is what we're doing now this is a new way of doing it and you do it and it's like what was it any more effective has it got any better um outcomes for the children are they enjoying it anymore because at the end of the day aren't we doing this for their enjoyment and their happiness um i'm not sure and the point you made about mindfulness i think is is really interesting because it's a word that's been taken and just completely jumbled up to mean something it could now it means colouring in a piece of paper and it's like, well, we can call that mindfulness if you want, but I think mindfulness is something a bit more um, deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, it's uh, very, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, I've got an interview with um, someone who did this massive piece of research, which I'm hoping he'll come on. He keeps delaying it, but I'm hoping that he'll come <laughs> on. But yeah, I mean, I think it's um, one of the things is that when we put these new interventions in as well, quite often the results are in the long term so we might not see Mm. them right now but actually they they might be something that we see in the long term but of course you need to see in in the classroom you need to see immediate results so when we talk about things like emotional literacy um we may not see immediate effects but what we might see is something that happens when they're a teenager and suddenly that all of that clicks in all of those tools Mm. they haven't really been using suddenly click in so even if you're teaching them and and that's the problem as well for for, particularly for primary schools but in secondary schools as well we teach them skills we have no way of knowing whether or not those skills will be useful in 10 15 years time and they might be they might be them because I'm sure everybody who's listening has probably experienced that thing of like oh, I learned that in school when's that going to be useful and suddenly one day they're like oh I remember learning this in school it was incredibly at, right at this moment <laughs> it's really useful I thought then it was yeah. a waste of time but this right now is what I need so you know you just never know do you yeah, just important that we are, I suppose, discerning when we look at the research and then is it actually practical, is it applicable and how are we going to keep testing this or how are we going to keep measuring this? Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
want to talk about a couple of topics that you are particularly interested in and um so for example like the psychology of learning and study um you talk a lot about this don't you with the parents and the students and the schools that you work with um how this psychology can impact on on the well-being of children and exam anxiety as well um so could you speak a little bit about that and perhaps what the research tells us and and from your experience as well yeah absolutely so when i started um when i stepped out of the classroom i have a lovely friend who worked at Reading University is now at Oxford um, and I was working with her and her colleague Polly Waite and Polly's uh, particular area is kind of anxiety and I was talking to her and she said well one of the problems is we get all these these young people in kind of teenagers mm-hmm. who are very anxious they have all sorts of anxieties it might be um, that they have generalized anxiety so just, just generally feel quite anxious or they might be very specific anxieties around exams she said, the problem is we deal with the cognitive behavioural bit. So we do all of the therapy, but we never at any point teach them how to study. And that's the thing they need because they're feeling very overwhelmed by going into these exam periods. You know, it's a long, particularly looking at GCSE or A-level, it's a long period of quite stressful um, preparation. And there's a lot of pressure from teachers and from parents. They feel very, very stressed, but they don't have the skills to cope with it because they haven't really ever been taught how to study. Now, I think as teachers, quite often we do, again, intuitively, we do things that are quite helpful. But from my personal experience with my son, at the Easter of year 11 was when the school decided that was the best time to teach him how to revise. And I was like, why is this happening now? <laughs> this oh, is, man. this is not, we, we should have been doing this in year seven. In fact, we should probably have been doing it in primary school. So mm-hmm. I feel very strongly that actually teaching kids how to become independent learners is probably the best way to describe it. It's really, really important. And I know there's lots of, again, it's, it's, interesting because we talk about homework and how it improves grades and whether or not it improves grades I'm a firm believer in homework not because of necessarily the way that it improves their subject knowledge but actually in helping students to become independent learners and so interesting once they have learned you know so things like think about when you come home you come home and I'm going to take an example of a young lad who was on one of my study skills courses. He came home, he would have something to eat. He would get his, he would sit down and he would play on the computer. And that was it. His evening, once he was on the computer, he was fully absorbed in that computer game. There was no way that he was going to do anything else. And that was his habit. And we get into habits of how our evenings work. But what we want is for students to start, you know, GCSE, it's it's rule of thumb, one to two hours of of study per subject. And that includes homework. And A-level, it's every hour in the classroom, an hour outside of the classroom independent study. So we've got to get into mm. the habit. So if you come, come home and that's your habit is to have something to eat and then immediately go onto the computer, it's really difficult to break that. So we worked quite hard on that and we, over a number of weeks, and he said, actually, I, what I do is I come home and I, I don't even go into the room where my computer is. I stay where I am with my snack and I get my homework out and I do it there and then. And this completely shifted everything for him because his habits changed and he was cueing his environment to help him to study independently. And so it's teaching kids that actually you've got to find the right environment to study in. And then once you've got that, what do you do? And I don't know about you, but when I was doing my A-levels, I remember sitting down, I remember one day sitting down and going, right, I'm going to do some French revision. I did French A-level. 
And I was like, right. And I sat there and I was like, tidied my desk. And then I like, had to find the book and like, oh, I need some paper. And like half an hour had gone before I'd done anything, just trying to find the right stuff. And then yeah, I get the book yeah. and I'm like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I don't know uh, what I need to revise. And so again, be, ha- learning how to organize your study so that you've got a list of what you need to learn and you start with the stuff that you don't understand um, and that mm. you, things like space learning so that you know that actually it's quite helpful the teachers set your learning to be space so you know you learn it in the classroom then you have an end of unit test so you know you've had a few weeks and then you learn it again and then there's another six weeks and you have probably some end of term exam and then you'll have mocks so you you get this space learning naturally but again students go oh well it was only a mock so I didn't really revise that hard and I'm like no you've got to revise because actually every time you learn it you're making that trace in your long-term memory stronger and that will help you in the summer in the actual exam because you'll already know quite a lot so you're only just topping up your knowledge rather than trying to learn everything mm-hmm. from scratch and you can't you know if you start revising in the easter you've got what eight weeks to learn and like um it's a podcast so most people are going to be listening to this, but i've got this amazing um sheet that i did for my son and i'm not joking so i'm five foot eleven so I'm really tall and i hold this up in front of the students and it's tiny it's like uh like uh probably 11 font um and I hold it up and it's like the whole length of my body. And it's like this, you know, <laughs> the whole, <laughs> like my arm span wide sheet of everything. It's just basically it's every heading of the textbook. And they, they see it. And I was oh, like, yeah, wow. you try it. You, you start learning this six weeks before your exam, you're stuffed, right? You have to start doing it now. And they're like, okay. So, you know, it's it's getting them to understand what they need to do. <laughs> yeah, it makes it very real. I, I tend not to do that at the Easter before because it just scares them. But if you're doing it like at the beginning of year 10, they kind of go, okay, I'd I understand why they they get why they need to start the revision now. So, you know, it's it, there's an element of habit and learning how to be an independent stu- um, student and, and learner. But also then there's obviously the psychology of actually learning. So then, you know, in the courses that I run, we look at things like cued recall. So, you know, identifying well, it's called cue dependent forgetting, but I tend to call it cued recall because it's just easier for people to understand. But it's like when you've got a double page spread of notes identifying keywords that are going to unlock the memory so the idea is that we never forget anything it's just that we can't access it so you know if I said to you you've got lots and lots of things in your head and at the moment you can't access them right so I say to you penguins and suddenly all this knowledge about penguins comes to the front of you are thinking oh they live you know cold they swim they don't fly they waddle they're black and white so all this information about penguins comes to your comes to mind when I say that's 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 the cue on your exam paper, you're going to have cues, you're going to have words. So I always use photosynthesis because it's something I can actually remember from A-level. Um, mm. And I say, okay, so think about the word photosynthesis and immediately you should have five words that come to mind. So you might have um, chloroplast, chlorophyll, sunlight, you might have the equation and something else. And I said, those are your five cues to recall. Those are the things that if you see that word photosynthesis, they, they come straight to your head. And then from that, you can go, okay, chloroplasts are, chlorophyll is, sun. this is the reaction, this is what's happening. So that's that's mm. quite a useful tool because then from that you can build flashcards you can build revision notes you can do mind maps you can do all sorts of revision tools that can help you r- recall and it's that idea again of, of recall not recognition so we talk a lot about recalling information because that's what you have to do in the exam not just reading and rereading your notes which is dead easy and anybody can do and you can feel very much like you've learned it but actually you haven't so yeah. I could go on about this for I've got lots I could say on this so <laughs> Just stop there. I can tell. <laughs>
I do an eight hour course on this. So, you know, to fit it into five minutes. Right. <laughs> well, you did a good job. <laughs> but that, yeah, f- fascinating, those those different tips that you've just shared. And, you know, you shared your experience of revising for French. And I can remember the same at GCSE and A level. And we just never taught this. And I can remember sitting down and just, right, what do I do? Okay, I've seen other people with like different colored highlighters. So I'm just going to do that as well. I'll just highlight some things and underline and then I'll make some notes and I'll make them look kind of like pretty. And I'm sure that's helping my long-term memory. And it's like, I think I saw, read or saw something recently about how it may not be the most effective way to learn that this highlighting that we see a lot of students do. But the this person, I can't remember who it was, was talking about how reading something and then like closing the book and then trying to paraphrase it and and uh, you know put it in your own words and how that's really effective. I don't know. Is that another tool? Am I on the right path there? Trying yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So there was. I mean, I do. There was again. This is why evidence based research is so important. There was a whole load of research about colours and how colours. You know, quite often you see things like colours mean this and colours mean that. And, you know, putting things in, it makes no difference at all. Colour makes no difference. There's no evidence to suggest that colour, highlighting things in different colours, highlighting is is a recognition thing. So you're reading it through and you're highlighting things in different colours. That can be useful if you're then going to do something with that information. So I'm going to highlight quotes in green and I'm going to highlight keywords in red. That's useful because then I'm going to learn from that. But what you just said about putting things in your own words is so important. So quite often we see students trying to rote learn from the textbook. And Mm. it's not, we talk about levels of processing. So if you just rote learn, you don't understand it. And you're going to be asked a question and you're not going to know whether that bit that you've wrote learn is appropriate to answer that question. So you can write that out. You might get a mark, you might get two marks, but if it's an eight mark question, you don't have enough information that you're not going to be able to learn that putting it in your own words really demonstrates that you're going to understand it um but also we all speak and we all express ourselves in different ways so the textbook language is mm. is no good if you don't understand what a word is or you don't you're not confident using words that the textbook has used just general words not not subject specific words then you're never going to be able to learn it and feel comfortable answering questions using that language so it is really important to paraphrase because a it shows that you understand and b it's going to be much easier in the exam to write what you mean um and and express yourself clearly in response to the exam question so yes absolutely that idea of recalling i mean so just to give you an example there's a really really nice piece of research and i'm going to sort of again paraphrase it generally because i can't remember the numbers of it but essentially they had three they had three groups of people and um, the, there are two groups that are particularly important. One group read the information three, three times and then were tested on it. So that is just recognising it. And then the other group had to read it through once, but then had to recall as much as they could three times. So they wrote out what they could remember, threw it away, did it again, and then they were tested. Mm. Immediately after, the group that had read it three, t- three times did much better on the test than the group that had um put it had just read it and then recalled it three times so you kind of understand that that group that first group that read it three three times they felt really confident yeah I've learned it I know it I'm like yeah of course I've learned it and that's exactly what students do they read stuff through and they feel really confident yeah I know it I can look I can recall it all it's amazing come three weeks later they come back and they're tested the group that did much better were the group that had done all of the recall so they'd read it through once and they recalled it three Mm. times they did much better in the test than the group that had read it through three times 
So what that tells us is that in order to learn to put stuff into our long term memory, it's that recall that is really, really important, even though at the time it really feels like you've learned nothing. So (laughs) this is the problem is that our intuition is reading through helps me learn. But actually, it's that recall. It's that testing the mind maps, you know, um, using flashcards or just writing out notes loads of times. That's what's helping us learn in the long term. And that's the problem is that our intuition doesn't match the reality. Oh, that's fascinating. And it's like you're, I think you're just doing exactly what you're, you've, you, we, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, you know, this is what the research says. And this is how it's been kind of not misconstrued, but you know, how it's kind of got a little bit mixed up in the classroom and in schools, whereas actually, this is what we can take from it. This is what it needs to look like. The thing is that quite often teachers know this. So like we, there's a lot about recall practice at the moment and, you know, that uh, retrieval practice is talked about a lot. The problem is that we don't explain that to to students. We don't say this is what we're doing. We don't explicitly state that. So they don't understand that that's why they're doing it. And I think actually when you explain to young people why you're doing something the way you're doing it, then they go, oh, Mm. okay, let me try that. I'll give it a go. Even though it feels uncomfortable and it doesn't feel right, I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. So I think, I think again, it's making those things that we do in the classroom sometimes explicit for the students. Right. And so really saying we're doing this to help your long-term memory, to help this information go into your long-term memory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. And this around long-term memory, we, we've kind of gone from learning and studying to long-term memory. Of course, they're, they're linked. And But I don't know, I was wondering if there's anything else we can talk about in terms of long-term memory because you just mentioned retrieval practice and this is something from a a personal point point of view it's it's on our school improvement plan at the school I work is helping students um, improve um, you know their ability to retain information in their long-term memory Um, so that's a primary school Um, I was wondering did, did you have any other tips around how it might look in the classroom so I was actually reading, um, I was reading, rereading uh, Sweller's work yesterday on cognitive load, which I'm really interested in. And it's one of those things that I've sort of intuitively, again, intuitively been teaching for a long time, but mm. then only recently kind of gone, oh, there's actually research on this. <laughs> um, and so the way that long term, the way that information goes into your memory is you have your working memory, which is really short. It's about 20 seconds long. And the capacity of it is when it's working really hard, it's probably like two to four items. So it's really small. You can hardly fit anything in it. Um, but it draws on long-term memory. So what happens is it goes through working memory and eventually it gets into long-term memory with enough practice and kind of, you know. But what makes it easier is if we are, if if so long-term memory is made up of what we call schemas, which are, they're kind of like almost like stories that you fit information into. And I mean, it's, it's described as kind of nodes. So for example, you'll have some information that you understand about, I don't know, that how how the earth goes around the sun, right? And then I might add in a bit more information about sunrise and sunset. And then I might add in a bit more information about me. So suddenly you're building up the schema about how planets work in space. And then you might add in gravity and then understand, you know, how, the, how gravity works. And so we're constantly using what's in our long-term memory so that we can just learn a little bit at a time. So I suppose in terms of teaching, one of the things that's really important is, first of all, understanding where your students are. Mm. And then secondly, in terms of getting into long-term memory, just 
you need to build on that information. What do they already know? And then how do you add in it? How do you add in information little by little? So they're not overwhelmed with too much information and don't know where to start, but also um, they're not trying to kind of, they're not taking on a whole load of new information um, that is, that's really complicated. And again, they just end up getting muddled and confused. So I suppose that's kind of the most useful thing to understand about getting stuff into long-term memory. It's just, just little by little, really. The other thing that's worth knowing about long-term memory is, uh, sorry, stop me when I get boring, is that we have different types of long-term yeah, memory. So we have, basically we have um, episodic memory. So we have memory that is about the episodes in our life. Mm. So, you know, what you did last summer or your your last birthday or you know some momentous event we have these episodes in our life you know some usually they're traumatic they usually make the ones that we can easily access are usually linked to emotions um but so we have these episodic memories and then we kind of have um the skills based memories so uh, things like you know how you ride a bicycle um I want to say kinesthetic, but then I'm going to get mm. in trouble for learning style. So I'm like, it's not. But um, basically, your your ability to draw, your ability to draw things, or your ability to to write. And then we have the kind of long term memory where you've got all your your semantic memory of, of information and knowledge. So we've got these three types of memories. And one thing that can make getting stuff into long term memory easier is when we hook it onto episodic memories because we episodic memories that we don't have to practice them over and over again to remember they go into our memory and. There are some issues around whether how good we are at accurately recalling those memories. That's a whole other story. But mm. um, the hooking things onto that that are meaningful to us can make a massive difference. So I'm going to use a really, <laughs> really unpleasant example, but it, it really worked for me. My grandfather uh, was in the Second World War and I, I'm guessing his diet was really bad and he ended up with something called diverticulitis, which is a really unpleasant bowel condition. Um, and it meant that he had to be quite careful of his diet and he had to eat lots of fibre. So I knew that he struggled with his bowels and I knew that there were all sorts of issues. And I remember sitting in a biology lesson and actually a home economics lesson, same sort of learning about somehow at the same time, digestion and dietary fiber. And I kind of put this all together with my grandfather. So I hooked it onto that understanding of the real world. And I was like, oh, you know, I knew, but I, didn't, I was like, I, I didn't forget it. I knew, I was like, oh, okay, so I need to go and tell granddad that he needs to eat more fiber. <laughs> you know, like jolly 14 year old that I was, I was like, oh, eat more fiber. Um, but you know, it, it, because I was hooking onto something that was in my experience and within my world and was relevant to me, it was helpful to understanding and my learning. So again, if we can find ways to make what we're teaching children relevant to them, then that can be really helpful. Yeah, and I suppose that links to the, you know, these the hook days that you see in primary schools and secondary schools where it's a real experience, isn't it? And they can learn, I think, much more in that one day when they're really in it and then engage than a whole, I don't know, a whole week's worth of just looking at a PowerPoint and doing a couple of worksheets or something. And yeah. it makes me think, I think a previous guest on the show, I think it was Fiona Murden, um, who's also a psychologist, and she talked about um, how we learn through stories, which it's, I guess it's the same thing, isn't it? And we can teach through these stories, and then I suppose they're, they're attached to that, um, that scenario in their head, and then they can retain it much better. Yeah, my, I do remember being told, and I never got to try this, but I do remember being told of a psychology teacher who taught, was teaching about memory and made the all of the students sit under the desks as a 
point of um you know just to make an example of what how you can if you make experiences unique um they stick out because you know if you think about like I love education, I love school, but school is very repetitive. It's very samey. Um, you'll remember your first day at school, right? You remember your last day at school. It's called the peak end rule. Mm. Anyway, but, and, and you'll mm. remember emotional or novel moments. So moments that are emotional, moments that make you laugh. So again, using emotion and using novelty to get things to stick. Um, and, you know, so stories, I guess, can be, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining as well that stories can be very emotional because there's quite often... Mm you know, you're following the emotions of a person. So it helps to hook, you know, when we, uh, so when we do remember things, they tend to be hooked to that emotion, you know, things that make us off. And there's some really lovely, sorry, I'm talking a lot about bowels, but there's there's some really lovely research around peak end rule um, with colonoscopies um, that Daniel Kahneman talks about. Um, and they basically, they made people who were having colonoscopies they had to rate their experience. And at the end, some people had just like the code, the, the camera was just whipped out and other people had a moment where they were allowed to breathe and, and be calm. And they found that the kind of that, that moment where um, they could be breathing calm, calm at the end was uh, allowed them to feel better and more positive about the experience. And I guess what I use that example for is that if you make the end of the lesson kind of positive and, and I get students to, I used to get students to do positive reflections at the end. So like I used to have a Twitter wall and they'd have to write on a little piece of, on a tweet, like, you know, mm. one thing that they found really good about the lesson and putting it on the wall or, you know, those, those moments at the end, again, they can be, they can help with mental health, but also with recall because that's the bit that we tend to remember. Interesting, interesting. I like that idea at the end as well. I think in my NQT year, we, I had a um, Twitter wall, but I, I haven't done it since. I don't think. Which is oh, you've given me a bit of a reminder. Probably just be an Instagram wall or a snap a Snapchat wall now. Wouldn't that's it? true. Yeah, TikTok wall. Yeah, what dance can you make out of this lesson? I don't know. But, uh, yeah that's what kids do. <laughs> yeah, but interesting. Yeah, I didn't think we'd be talking about colon. I can't even say the word now. Colonoscopies. Exactly. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Very wide-ranging episode bring the, today. Bring the tone no, no, right down. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I well, I'm very interested in um, nutrition and and our microbiome and our fiber, and so yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this, all, all that kind of stuff. So it's fine. Nothing, nothing has phased me. <laughs> now you mentioned you um you mentioned about learning styles as well and said that you get a bit in trouble. So I wonder whether we can um, move into that aspect of this conversation because we've got some, um, some myths, haven't we, in psychology that you, yes. that you like to, to bust, don't you? you, like to bust a few myths. Um, so perhaps we can talk about some of those because there's, there's lots of things and you see it in other aspects of, of lifestyle and science, don't you? You definitely see it in nutrition, um, you see it in exercise where just – Something was said, maybe that one piece of research was done and then it was reported in uh, a few news articles and then just everyone runs with it and no one actually stands back and and looks at it, do they, again? Um, And then it just becomes part of the common common lingo or or something, I suppose I'd put it. Um, So let's talk about some of those. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I'm going to start with learning styles because it's my favourite. And it's interesting. So I still get, we have um, 
as I said earlier, I work on ITT. So we still get students who come in and they'll be they'll be on the online learning platform and there'll be something about learning styles and I'm like straight in there. No! <laughs> learning styles, again, a little bit of research came out and then some government government minister in some speech said, you know, we need to we need to uh do with this, you know, differentiate, we need to adapt and we need to make sure that every child is getting, you know, the unique experience and learning styles are a great way to do this. So everybody's like, great learning styles really easy to do with like kinesthetic learning. The evidence suggests that what we measure when we measure learning styles is a preference. So it's not even accurate. It's someone's subjective viewpoint of how they like learning. But as we know, what is necessary, what is intuitive isn't necessarily accurate. Mm-hmm. And then as teachers, we go, oh, they're a kinesthetic learner. I'll give them something kinesthetic to do. But, you know, you think about riding a bicycle, right? You cannot ride a bicycle by reading about it in a book or watching someone else do it. You have to get on a bicycle and actually ride it to learn how to ride a bicycle. Everybody has to learn that through kinesthetic means. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you mm-hmm. are. So to say you have a preferred learning style, pigeonholes you. And it's a bit like... Um, like any label the minute you start labeling people you you restrict the opportunities that they have to learn and so actually what we find with learning styles is that it's dangerous it 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 can restrict learning opportunities and therefore should not be used in the classroom end of story there you <laughs> so go. i feel quite passionate about that as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> the other one i guess there are, there are two other ones that are the main ones that that come up one is the idea that we only use 10 percent of the brain no one ever knows where this comes from it's absolute rubbish <laughs> my my theory i've no evidence for this at all so talking about evidence base is that with freud in freudian theory we have um is quite often described as an iceberg. So the 10% above the water is the conscious and then mm. the rest is subconscious. I think that maybe is where it came from, but there are lots of theories about where this weird myth came from. You think about the brain, brain uses more energy than any other part of the body. It's huge. like, why would evolution produce an organ that's 90% redundant and uses so much energy? It's just like bonkers. So like, let's just forget that. We use all of our brain no, all of the time, like some of it's just like chugging along, mm. but we do use all of our brain and all sorts of different areas. So, yeah. I, mm. I, Could it be linked though to, um, and I'm not disputing what you're saying at all. I'm just, is it, you know, some people have such incredible cognitive abilities, don't they, to learn or to, you know, just pick up, just to be able to hear a piece of music and then play it on their piano. Is it, do people get that confused? You know, do, do people think that that's what people have meant by 10%, you know, I've got all this potential, um, but I'm not utilising it. Yeah, I think that, that, I think that's another, the other, yeah, so I think that might be one theory. And I think the other theory is that there's, there are some people who've been born with uh, enormous kind of, um, like whole, basically holes in their brain and they have like a 10, they're, and they're still functioning normally and you wouldn't really understand that there's something wrong with them. Um, and so people have gone, okay, maybe we only need to use 10% of our brains. So what's the other, you know, but ultimately I think with those people, you do find that there are problems. There are difficulties that they, right. they face. So there are lots of theories, as I say, you know, and probably they all, it's all, it's a little bit of everything. Um, so, yeah. Uh so I, yeah, nobody really knows. There's lots of lots of debate on like if you go and look up ten percent of your brain, like why lots and lots of different theories. As I say, that's my mine is the iceberg one, but you know. Um the so the other the other one that I, I guess is probably a good one to quash is the left brain, right brain dominance theory. 
Um, if you ever see a test that tests for lateralization function, it's rubbish. Oh, <laughs> we okay. haven't got any really good valid <laughs> tests, that, that test for dominance. Um, again, you know, it is based on sound science. So we know that different areas, different sides of the brain, our brain has two hemispheres, um, and that there are that functions sit in different sides of the brain. So we know that, for example, the left hemisphere is predominantly language. There's all, most of the language function resides in the left hemisphere, but there is language function in the right. So if you get damaged, <laughs> if you get damaged to the right hemisphere, you will, you might have some language impairment. We know that facial recognition is predominantly in the right hemisphere. So there's absolutely there is lateralization of function, but we also have this massive bundle of fibers that joins the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum. And if you look on brain scans, that's firing all the time with any, you know, in a normal brain, with any task you give it, right at the moment, both my left, even though I'm, all I'm doing is speaking and language is in the left, both my hemispheres will be firing because I'm making decisions about all sorts of things and attending to lots and lots of different information. So there isn't any, you know, the left brain, right brain dominance thing is not a particularly helpful thing to know about we you know we just have di different people have different skills for all sorts of reasons maybe it's because of the environment they live in the people the things mm. they're exposed to when they were younger maybe there is there's obviously some genetic potential to do some things better than others you know mm. i am not a natural musician much to my disappointment but you know <laughs> i'm quite good at wittering on about psychology <laughs> so you know we we have different skills but but it's not to do with left or right brain dominance and um i think you know, in terms of creativity, like I've always said, I'm not a creative person because I'm not an arts person, but actually my creativity comes up in different ways. You know, I'm really creative when it gets to devising tasks for students to do. So, you know, we're all creative. It's just how you define it. And I, I, yeah, so there's no such thing as brain dominance. That's really interesting. That that was about to be my, my question for just uh, in a second. Yeah, it was going to be that we, I remember hearing a lot about that right brain, left brain dominant, how okay i'm more right brain so is that you know the more creative musical side and if you're left brain then it's more logical um i can definitely remember growing up with that theory but you're saying it's yeah, nonsense. yeah. <laughs> you know as i say it's it's based in it's based in research yeah. i mean you know we do know that there is there is but but actually how do you measure brain dominance and it's all of it is subjective responses mm. um so you know it's all it's all to do with your feedback so i answer all the questions well if i think i'm really creative and i know that i'm testing because i've got you know i'm going to be right brained or whatever then i'll just answer all the questions how it, so those tests are not necessarily yeah. measuring what we're intending them to measure they're not valid they're measuring what we you know they're probably measuring people's own biases towards mm. what they think they should be yeah. rather than what is actually going on yeah. And it, so, yeah, I'd be very, very cautious of any test that claims to measure brain dominance, mm. especially on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you said about um, kind of pigeonholing children. It's it could be you know, from a very young age, boys and girls can get told that they are great at maths or that they're a really good artist or that you're a great dancer and so then of course you're going to keep pursuing that and then perhaps be better than your peers by the time that you're a teenager that's so interesting and I can remember thinking I remember growing up and thinking that I'm not a creative person um, and then I kind of just wanted to challenge that in myself so I did learn the guitar and then I did start writing music and then I did um, form a band with my friends and we went around the country and, and you know um, played gigs and it's like I always said I wasn't a creative person I could never write music I could never draw very well and it's like well 
if you if you if it's something you're passionate about, I think that's the important thing, isn't it? If you're passionate about it, you're interested and you give time to it, we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that goes back to growth mindset, you know. Mm. So I mean again, growth mindset is a little bit of a silver bullet for everything. I <laughs> fully believe in growth mindset I think there's a lot of evidence to say that it is but it's not the be all and end all um but yeah absolutely the brain is incredibly plastic we you know even as adults I mean what I'm always amazed by is that by the end of this conversation both our brains will be changed there might be minuscule microscopic changes but we will have created new neurons we will you know we're looking at each other's faces we're creating a pattern of faces we're you know our, our brains will be fundamentally different and I just think wow that is amazing and children's brains are more plastic than mm. adult brains so they really can learn all sorts of things um really quickly i just and i just think that's a, that's amazing what an amazing evolutionary thing yeah and what an important point especially as a primary school teacher to not start putting children into these groups and just give them all the experiences they have and encourage them in whatever they are interested in yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think gender, gender is a really another really interesting one. Um, and, mm. you know, things like just before a math test, if you say people's names, it highlights their gender and girls will then do better, will do worse in the math test than boys because oh, the gender stereotypes are so strong in yeah. things like maths, you know, that that we can we can influence test outcomes by highlighting people's gender. You know, just tick a box, male or female at the top. So, you know, we, as teachers, we need to be super careful of all these stereotypes that we bring into a classroom and all our own cognitive biases that we have as we approach and talk to children. Great. Well, that's a, uh, a fantastic point to not finish off on because I've got a couple of questions left for you, but to kind of round off some of some of the this main part of the conversation. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. Oh, brilliant. Right. Well, I've got, um, yeah, one question. Well, not a question, but it's a, it's a, an invitation <laughs> to share your your three top tips to thrive. What we like to do on this podcast is kind of distill all of that that we've talked about and what are three takeaways that our listeners can get from this and start applying right away. Okay. <laughs> so number one, I guess, be a little bit critical of any new thing that comes along. Just think about it a little bit critically know that it's probably based on some kind of research but how good is that research and is it is it done on a for example a population that is applicable to your population mm. um i think the other one would be to start embedding effective independent study skills early so for me that's really important i work with children in year 11 or 10 who've never been taught how to learn and they're doing all of the things that they shouldn't be doing and so you know getting really good high quality study skills embedded into lessons um, and, and homework is, I think, is really important. Um, and yeah, let's just do a bit of myth busting and not talk about learning <laughs> styles or left brain, right brain anymore, please. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I like those three tips. Fantastic. <laughs> and the one final question that we like to ask all our guests is, um, if you could go back to school and choose anyone to be your teacher, who would it be and why? Oh, so this this is a really, really hard question because I was thinking about what is it that I want in a teacher? And I was thinking, well, I, I quite like that bit of that teacher and that bit of that teacher. Mm. And I was thinking, well, who do I know that other people will know 
that fits all those criteria. And I think actually I don't know, you know, celebrities very well. And then I was thinking about people who've been very influential in my life. And I have one friend who is a teacher and she was uh, when we were, when I was doing my PGCE, she was, she'd already been teaching for a number of years and we rowed together. So we did Great Britain rowing trials together. Oh, wow. And I think that she would be an amazing teacher. She's very passionate. She's very caring and kind. And she can, I reckon, I've never seen it, but I just, I can imagine her silencing a whole classroom with the raise of an eyebrow. <laughs> she has this amazing ability to just, just stop with it just like she just raises one eyebrow um so that's my, my lovely friend Helen um and I think I would like her to be my teacher when I was younger because she I think yeah just she has all of those qualities that I would want in a teacher oh lovely that's a really nice one <laughs> very personal I like it <laughs> she has to listen to the episode now doesn't she because we've mentioned her <laughs> well yeah exactly I'll have to send her, but, but I you know it's it's very hard because actually you know there are people you can think would be quite funny but what do you want in a teacher if you want to learn you want that compassion you want that ability to feel safe in mm. a classroom and I think she would make the classroom feel safe even if it's just with the raise of an eyebrow <laughs> oh, lovely brilliant right well thank you so much for for joining me today um it's been a great conversation I love the the myth busting I love the the little tips that I'm going to certainly think about for my classroom practice and I'm sure our listeners will be as well um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for having me um, I love talking about psychology so it's always a real pleasure oh good 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 and then before I let you go you've got to share um, how can people connect with you where can they find you your website and, and things like that uh, yes so I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Changing States of Mind and my website is changingstatesofmind.com and then um, I do have if people want I have a parenting group that I have on Facebook so if they look up parenting your child through secondary education and you know point parents in that direction um, and then obviously my podcast Psychology in the Classroom so again just google Psychology in the Classroom with my name Lucinda Paul and uh, yeah. Oh brilliant what's on the Facebook group is it is it some of those study tips and ways to help children at secondary school? Yeah so we have a themed uh, theme every month so this month is obviously a lot of schools are heading towards mocks so it's all about things like you know how to embed good study habits um, we put videos up we put posts I run it with my lovely another another friend called Helen a different Helen um, <laughs> and we put coaching tips in and just you know there's so much again so much psychology around the teenage brain so it's all about actually as a parent how mm. do you manage that those teenage years uh, which can as we all know can be very challenging we love them dearly but uh yeah it's just also just not to feel alone when, mm. <laughs> when you're parenting teenagers yeah. and you just want to tear your hair out um and feel like you're a bad parent so it's just that community space really brilliant well i'm going to pass that on to my sisters because i've got nieces and nephews at secondary school now so what was the facebook group called again it's parenting your child through secondary education brilliant brilliant but if you go on to my uh if you just look up changing states of mind and look through the thread there'll be something there about okay the group so you'll be able to find it through that as well brilliant brilliant okay right i will let you go thank you so much for your time again and look forward to connecting with you again soon awesome thank you so much for having me so thank you for joining us i hope you enjoyed today's episode and of course, I'd love to hear from you if you found it useful and anything that you've taken away from the conversation with Lucinda. If you did enjoy the episode, 
please do share it with friends, family and colleagues so we can reach even more people and help them learn about these really important topics. So I'll see you next time on the Teach on Talks podcast.